0: thanks for listening to this sermon from cedar springs church we know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions at cedar springs we see you and we're with you we also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper in fact we believe god created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them we want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with god and with others If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Mike Ford. I'm the pastor of Young Adults here at Cedar Springs. And uh, as a church, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, which uh, is a statement of beliefs that Christians have professed for 2,000 years, not because the apostles wrote it, but it is a summary of apostolic teaching. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the section uh, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. <clears throat> uh, happy Father's Day. It's going to be very uplifting. And so here we are. Uh, but before we begin, one caveat. One um, caveat. As we talk about the life and death of Jesus, normally we should talk about the forgiveness of sins, Uh, that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He is our substitute. He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The cross is where the justice and the mercy of of God meet, and our sins are forgiven. However, later this summer, there's a section of the creed, which is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And uh, let's see, Reverend John Wood will be preaching on that. And so... Uh, Instead of having two sermons on forgiveness of sins, where some of you might be tempted to compare which one you like better or not, uh, we're just not going to talk about forgiveness of sins this morning, okay? Additionally, we're not going to talk about the resurrection because my section ends with he he died and was buried. There's no resurrection this morning, okay? So what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Here's my hope. My hope is that by meditating on the suffering, life, and death of Jesus— we might see more of who God is and what he's like and what he thinks of us and how we might be able to, to, to relate and to connect with him. So to do that, I'm going to reread Luke 24, that one verse in verse 26, uh, and then pray, and then we'll get after it. So hear now the good news of a, of a God who is willing to suffer for you. Verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is God's word. It's good, true, and beautiful and given to you in love. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful to be your people, to gather together, to reflect on your word and the work of your son, Jesus, on our behalf. I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and minds to, to hear you, to receive you, and to commune with you uh, this morning. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all, so um, reading Harry Potter to my children at night, and fortunately for them, they don't know what real British people sound like, and uh, a lot of practice, not a lot of improvement, but here we are. Now, I'm going to spoil something for y'all if you have not read it, so please cover your ears. I'm getting some pushback from the other services. Just leave. I won't be offended, but here we are. Uh, Harry Potter and his friends Hermione Granger and Ron Weasley attend Hogwarts, which is a school for wizards. And Albus Dumbledore is the headmaster there, and he's the most powerful wizard alive, and he's a good guy. The only one that rivals him is Tom Marvolo, Riddle, which if you move his letters around, spells Lord Voldemort. And he and his followers, the Death Eaters, they're the bad guys, okay? There are seven books in the series, and at the end of the sixth book, The Death Eaters have finally infiltrated Hogwarts. They've got Albus Dumbledore cornered at the top level of his office, overlooking the rest of the castle grounds. Harry Potter is hidden in the shadows, and Dumbledore says, don't come out here, there's too many. And he's watching on. And then Severus Snape shows up, a teacher of whom there is mutual dislike between Harry and himself. Now, Severus used to be a Death Eater, but now he's a good guy, and Albus Dumbledore trusts him which makes what happens next all the more confusing because Dumbledore looks at Severus and says, please, Severus. And Snape yells, Avada Kedavra, which is a killing curse. And Dumbledore is thrown from the high parapet ledge of his castle, of his office, thrown all the way down and dies on the castle grounds. Now, Harry is watching this whole thing happen. And can you imagine what it was like to see the one person who had the power to defeat Lord Voldemort dies. Like, this is the one guy you need, and and he's gone. You know how devastating that would have been. But you see, it's not until the end of the seventh book, spoiler, um, that we get some information that Dumbledore had destroyed something very valuable to Lord Voldemort, which was this ring. And in doing so, he took a curse or a sickness into his body. As a Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard would say, it was a sickness unto death because he only had a year left to live. And so Dumbledore actually told Snape beforehand, I need you to kill me in front of the Death Eaters so that they trust you completely and you can be a spy for us. Here's the point. Dumbledore was going to die anyway. He was already bearing the sickness of death in him. He just decided to choose how he was going to die. And in doing so, he orchestrated a way that would actually bring down the enemy. Now in the same way, this is this is how Jesus I mean the disciples must have felt when Jesus the Messiah, who was supposed to vanquish the Romans and set up an Israelite earthly kingdom, gets crucified and dies. It must have felt like all hope is lost. Like the one guy we needed is now gone. What are we going to do? It must have been devastating. But what they didn't realize is that that was all part of God's plan, right? Luke 24, don't you know it was necessary for Christ to suffer? It was necessary for Jesus to die in order to heal the world. And so he chose how it was going to happen. So as we look at the the life and death of Jesus, I want us to remember that God chose this. It wasn't an accident. He chose to die like this. And the question is, why? Like, what does this reveal about who God is and what he thinks of us? Well, the first thing we can, we can say is that it means that, that he identifies with us. He identifies with us. The incarnation of Jesus means he took on flesh and blood and became like us in time and history. This is why Pontius Pilate is mentioned in the creed. He was a real person. And he was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea under Emperor, Emperor Tiberius from 26 AD to 36 AD, which was exactly when Jesus was doing his public ministry, according to the gospels. And so, why would Jesus take on flesh in time and history to identify with humanity? Because he's not ashamed of us, he's not embarrassed by us. There's this great passage in Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 10 that says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. But for those who put their faith in Jesus, he, he's not ashamed of you. He's not, he's not embarrassed by you. He, he came to identify with you, to be known that he's with you. Um, to illustrate this, I hope, I hope if I share this, you, can't, you have to promise to not judge me for my parenting. Okay, or I'm not going to share it. So make that promise. And All right, here we go. Early on, uh, my third son, Peter, um, was watching a lot of football on Saturdays, as you do uh, on Saturdays. And he kept noticing that there's this one team that just kept winning all the time. Every time they went onto the field, they devastated their opponents and dominated them. And you know, he became a fan of this team because, you know, winning is more fun. And the only problem is, is that this team is the Alabama Crimson Tide. And now here's what's great. We live in Knoxville, Tennessee, go Vols. And at Rocky Hill Elementary, where my kids go to school, go Rams, uh, they had a Vols day. It was Vols day and Peter, my son, shows up in an Alabama football jersey. He was not ashamed to identify with Alabama in the midst of enemy territory. He was at the first service. He wants you to know that he's not a bandwagon fan. He still loves him, even though Tennessee beat him this past year. Let's go, boss. No, here's the point. He was willing to wear that jersey because he's not ashamed of who he's identifying with. Jesus wears a human flesh jersey because he's not ashamed of being a human being. He's not embarrassed of us. He's not like, oh man, I guess we have to let this guy in to heaven because he believes in me and that's how this deal works, you know? No, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he, he loves to identify with you. He wants to tell everyone that, that you guys are together in your family. And this requires great humility on Jesus's part. You know, one time in scripture we have where Jesus describes a characteristic or an attribute of who he is. And it's in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he says, come to me all who are weary for I am and heavy laden and I will give you rest for I'm, I'm gentle and lowly in heart come to me because I'm humble. Now, if anyone of you said that, no, hey, like I'm really humble. We'd be like, sure you are, buddy, you know? But if God himself, the one whom the nations are but a drop in the bucket says this, what does that mean? It means it's just this remarkable idea that God wants you to know he is gentle and humble and you can identify with him. He, he identifies with us. Philippians 2 says it like this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, excuse me, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, and taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, This section of Philippians was an early church hymn. And Paul here adds this extra little phrase, even death on a cross, to highlight and illustrate the utter humility of what Jesus did in order to do that. Because I think it's easy for us to forget that the cross was mostly for slaves. It was for the lowest of the economic classes. In ancient Rome, if you were wealthy, and had connections, you were able to avoid such a death. But Jesus doesn't. (laughs) Jesus chooses to die like this. Because of his humility, he wants to identify not just with humans, but the the lowest, the poor, the forgotten. Theologian Fleming Rutledge says this, this was the destiny chosen by the creator and Lord of the universe, the death of a nobody. Thus, the Son of God entered into solidarity with the lowest and least of all of his creation, the nameless and the forgotten. The death of a nobody. If you feel invisible, forgotten, a nobody, Jesus wants to identify with you, the creator of the universe. It's kind of amazing. And by identifying with us and not being ashamed of us, which required great humility, it led to his shameful death, which I use that qualifying adjective, shameful, deliberately, because look, okay, have you ever thought about why crucifixion? Like why, why crucifixion? There's a lot of ways that God could have chosen to die. There's a lot of methods, but why crucifixion? And uh, it's interesting to note that the New Testament writers don't really spend any time on the gory details of the death. Um, Maybe they expected the original readers to understand what crucifixion was, but also Fleming Relage makes this, I think, pretty insightful point that perhaps the New Testament writers did not go into all the gory details, which we like, but they chose not to do that because they didn't want us to focus on the physical and mental pain they wanted us to focus on something else that was going on. And, and it's this, that crucifixion was all about publicly shaming the victim. Crucifixion was all about shame. This is why Jesus was naked. This is why the soldiers mocked him all night with a purple robe and a crown of thorns. This is why they made him walk through the city all the way through the city of Jerusalem so that the crowds could gawk at him. This is why the soldiers and the Pharisees hurled insults at him as he was raised up on the wood. The cross was not the most efficient way to kill someone. And that's the point. They wanted it to last, they wanted it to be public because it was all about degradation. Publicly shaming Jesus was a way to declare to the world that he is worthless, he's not even worthy to be treated like a human being. And so the cross is a symbol of godlessness. That Christ the God experiences a godless act, and Christ the human was dehumanized. Um, To illustrate this, uh, in 1998 in Laramie, Wyoming, a young gay man in his 20s named Matthew Shepard was beaten to an inch of his life uh, by two men because of his sexual orientation, and he was then tied up to a fence and abandoned in the cruel Wyoming winter. Uh, Eighteen hours later, a passerby found him, but Uh, had originally thought that he was a scarecrow. He was taken to the hospital and didn't recover, dying, dying five days later. One local resident said this, there's incredible symbolism in being tied to a fence. People have likened it to a scarecrow, but it sounded more like a crucifixion. You see, the perpetrators of this horrific crime could have just killed Matthew quickly and efficiently, but they didn't want to. They wanted to humiliate him and shame him and dehumanize him. Um, Y'all, you know, Jesus, Jesus chose the cross. He chose that experience. He, he chose to be shamed. And this is a great scandal of the gospel, is that the world was saved by Christ becoming our shame the Bible talks about shame eight more times in guilt because that's the common experience we all have. Shame is feeling we're not enough. We're, we're less than, we're not right. And Jesus became shame on the cross in order to restore our humanity. That, that's the great scandal of it. And so some of you this morning are bearing some shame and carrying it and come to Jesus. You don't need to carry it alone. He became your shame so that you could give it to him and he could heal you and restore you. And this leads to the second point is that the suffering life and death of Jesus reveals not just that he identifies with us, but that we, we can identify with him. That we can actually now relate to him and what it's like to be God because he first related to us, right? He understands. You see, there's something about going through similar experiences with people that it enables connection, right? This is why when you meet someone new, you're kind of like, what food do you like, right? Because everyone loves food and you're just trying to connect on something. It's easier to relate with someone if you go through a similar experience. So for example, my wife uh, has given birth a few times, and uh, I didn't really know what that was like uh, until I had a kidney stone. And you know, the doctor said it was like the size of a grain of salt, it fell bigger to me. Uh, and it was incredibly painful, am I right, ladies, the, the labor involved in, in giving birth to, um, to something. And, and now I know what my wife's experiences were like. Um, just kidding. <laughs> uh, I asked her, is it okay if I share that? Because it was a joke on Father's Day. But no, um, and it's a heavy sermon, so we've got to lighten it up a little bit. Uh, here's the deal. When you go through an experience that someone else went through, you automatically in some way are able to connect with them in a deeper way. Jesus, because he's human, is now able to connect and relate to us and we with him in a deeper way. Objectively, again, substitutionary death of Jesus opened a way up for humanity to be brought back to God, to have our guilt atoned for and sins forgiven and to be brought into the presence of our King. And existentially, right now, experientially, this week, we can have a deep personal relationship abiding relationship with Jesus because he understands what it's like to be us. Hebrews 2, 18, for he himself has suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So here's some examples that Jesus experienced. He experienced family issues. His family in Matthew 12 thought he was crazy and tried to get him to stop doing public ministry. They had a plan for his life and Jesus was disappointing them. So if any of you feel like you have this pressure in your family and you're not meeting someone's expectations, Jesus understands. Or how about the loss of a loved one or a parent, right? Joseph isn't mentioned in the gospels and most scholars think it's because he died when Jesus was young. And so Jesus was raised without a father figure. He knows what it's like to lose loved ones and to live this world without them. He knows what that's like. Uh, Jesus was tired. John 4 says Jesus was tired. Any of y'all tired? (laughs) Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to be tired. He also knows what it's like to be afraid and stressed out about the future, right? In the garden, he is stressed out about the future. And if you feel like that this morning, he gets it. He understands. How about um, having close friendships that deteriorate? Wounds from a friend, like the, the one night that he needed his friends to be there for him, they left him. And some of you have friendships that there was painful words or actions, and it's never recovered. Jesus knows what that's like. And then how about this? Jesus was never married. And as someone who is fully human, he had desires and attractions that he chose not to have fulfilled because God had a different plan for his life. And does anyone here have unfulfilled desires, right? Whether with not being married or something else, how your career went? Um, Jesus understands. And these experiences of Jesus actually leads not to alienation from him, but actually deeper intimacy with him. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin holds a PhD in Renaissance literature from Cambridge, uh, if you've heard of that, and a theology degree from Oak Hill College. And she's a former vice president of Veritas Forum. And she wrote a book called Confronting Christianity 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion. Let's go, Rebecca. She is conquering those 12 tough questions. And she has a chapter on suffering. And she says something quite interesting. She says that someone trying to comfort you who hasn't really gone through what you've gone through is nice, right? It's kind, like, thank you. But it doesn't, it doesn't comfort you. Like, it, it doesn't um, provide healing. It's not a balm to your wound, that real comfort and healing comes from someone who actually understands who's been through it. This is why so many support groups are for people going through specific tragedies. Because sometimes you just want comfort from someone who gets it, who understands. And y'all, this is why Christ can comfort us. This is why 2 Corinthians 1 says he's a father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Why? Because Jesus suffered and lived and died. He knows. He understands. She says this, Rebecca McLaughlin, our suffering matters enough to bring tears to his eyes. Referencing when Jesus wept tears of sorrow and anguish over the death of his friend, Lazarus. Our suffering matters enough to bring tears to his eyes. And she goes on to say this, pain is a place of special intimacy with him. I think one of the saddest realities about having children is that uh, you know that as they come into the world, they will experience pain. And you can't stop them from experiencing that. But intimacy can often come with our children when they suffer to be like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I had this happen to me when I was your age. It was really painful. (laughs) Do you want to talk about it? There's this place where pain, rather than being something to avoid, can be a place of connection and, and intimacy. Because you guys understand. Jesus understands what it's like to be human. He experienced Grief, right? He's a man of pain, it says in Hosea. But also he understands the joys because for the joys that before him, he endured the cross and he despised that shame. And because of that, it leads to a deeper intimacy with him. So what what does this mean for us? I'm just gonna tell you what Jesus says. Is that fair? Okay, is that cool? And here's what Jesus says in Mark 8. (laughs) If anyone would follow me, let him pick up his cross or her cross And follow me. And now we're like, whoa, now that I know what cross means, I don't know about that Jesus, right? Because he's inviting us into a life of suffering love for others um, to somehow absorb and carry the shame of those around us, that we might point them to Jesus, that they might be healed. This is why Romans 8 says we are to suffer with Jesus. Or Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with Christ. So I no longer live, but he lives in me. That somehow, y'all, when you put your faith in Jesus and he lives in you, his story in the creed becomes your story. So what would it be like for us to find just one person who is going through a tough time, who's tired, who's struggling, and identify with them um, because they might be feeling a lot of shame and they might need someone to carry it with them. It might be a kid on your sports team or from school that no one likes. It could be that coworker that everyone kind of talks about behind their back. A family member that, that is messed up and it kind of is talked about on a separate text thread. Um, right, it could be a neighbor that has been hiding in their house for years. Uh, it will take great humility to do this and it will disrupt your life. But y'all, that's what Jesus did for us. That's the point. And as you do so, um, just remember that he really did suffer for you and lived a life of love and obedience. He really was crucified for you and publicly shamed in order to forgive you and to heal you. And he really did die for you. And what greater expression of love is there than to die in someone's place? So this, this week, after we, as we go and get back after it, remember that uh, Jesus identifies with us. He's not ashamed of you or embarrassed by you. Man, he loves you. He understands what it's like to be you because of his experiences, and that allows us to have intimacy with him in the joys and in the sorrows of life. Let me me close with this. Um, In 1973, uh, William Goldman wrote one of the best books ever, The Princess Bride, S. Morgan Stern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version, abridged by William Goldman, which was eventually turned into one of the greatest movies ever in 1987 by the same title, The Princess Bride. And it tells the story of how a farm boy fell in love with the farmer's daughter. And he went away to seek his fortune so that he could come back and give her the life that she deserves. Well, Buttercup, the princess bride, the the farmer's daughter, hears that the farm boy, aka Wesley, was attacked by pirates. And the infamous dread pirate Roberts killed him. And her heart dies that day. And... She eventually is courted by the conniving, sniveling, sneaky Prince Humperdinck, who says, it's okay that you don't love me, but marry me anyway for the good of the kingdom. And she does, or she's about to get married. And his real plan is to murder her, to incite a war, to get more land for his kingdom. Okay. Now, during the engagement, a few days before the wedding, she's taken hostage by three thieves that Humperdinck hires. One is great with a sword. The other is strong like an ox, and the leader is a Sicilian genius. And as they are taking her away in order to kill her, they're being followed by this, this man in black. And this man overcomes insurmountable obstacles to get to her. He defeats the swordsman. He knocks out the giant. He outwits the Sicilian. It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. They, sorry, he finally rescues Buttercup, right? And they get together and she realizes it's, it's the farm boy. It's, it's Wesley, all grown up, come back from the dead and has come to rescue her and live together with her in love. And as they are going through the fire swamp, battling ROUS's rodents of unusual size, she tells Wesley that she thought he had died and her world was over. Just like Harry Potter felt when, Snape killed Dumbledore, or just like the disciples felt when Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. But then Wesley looks at her and says, the greatest line in all of literature, death cannot stop true love. It can only delay it for a while. If someone truly loves you, they will suffer and fight and die for you. And this is what Jesus has done for you. Suffered, crucified, died, and was buried. But the gospel even says that death cannot stop True love, it it can only delay it for a while. And if you want to find out about the delay, you have to come back next week as we talk about the portion of the creed that says Christ descended into hell before his resurrection. Let me pray for us. Father, we're, we're reminded this morning of the great lengths that you went to show, to show your people that you, love us, you identify with us, you're not embarrassed by us, that you were willing to take on our shame for us so that we could be healed and restored to our full humanity. Lord, I pray that for all these men and women here this morning, as we go off into the world, bearing witness to what you are like, in some way, Lord, we would show people the God who suffered for us, crucified for us, and died for us.